Welcome to the Good Bad Mad podcast, a show that's here to share the ins and outs of creative careers, connecting the aspirational with the experienced, with your host, me, Meg Ellis. My guests for this episode are the co-artistic directors of the Payne's Plow Theatre Company. They are a nationally touring company who are dedicated to new writing and to empowering creators across the UK. Hope you enjoy it. Hello. Katie, hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Not too bad, thank you. Hi Charlotte. How are you both? You've been busy, I hear. Yes, very busy. Um, but yeah, good really. It's nice to be having conversations about making live work and chatting to loads of freelancers and getting going with um yeah, all the kind of upcoming plans. So when's when's the go date? Well, Charlotte's about to go into rehearsals for um reasons you shouldn't love me at the kiln. Um and so that opens the week theatre officially opens. So that's exciting. <laughs> that's so exciting. <laughs> we hope on the seventeenth of May. Um, and that's when I start rehearsals for Roundabout. Um, and then that opens in July, the end of July. So, yeah, it feels nice. So you two are co-artistic directors. Yeah. Had you worked together before you became co-artistic directors? Not like this. No, we knew, we'd known each other for about um, 10 years from Katie was in, in York at Pilot Theatre company at York Theatre Royal and I'd done some shows there so we'd sort of come across each other there and then and then I suppose like our careers started at the same time didn't they Katie so Katie was directing one of her first shows at York while I was directing one of my first shows at York or within about a year of each other and and so then um and then we ended up being like different kind of programming like north venue programming meetings together and stuff so we were sort of always aware of each other knew each other but never directed anything together before never led anything together before so before we kind of get into artistic direction and Payne's plow can I ask where you started my journey into the arts was through acting um I always wanted to be an actress like from a very very young age and I and I really thought that's what I would do um, and I went and I trained um, but like I always loved teaching so even when I was at school I used to be in year 11 you know year 10 and year 11 and I'd be running all the year 8 year 9 drama clubs <laughs> and doing all that stuff and then I always did workshops and I always wanted to lead but it was always from an educational point of view when I was acting and then um, I was basically I just decided that <laughs> whilst I was waiting for my agent's call I do something really useful and I teach because I love teaching um so I trained and did a PGCE as a qualification I taught in higher education it was only that that's where I wanted to teach because I always wanted to work with people who had made a choice to do drama mm. um and then while I was doing that there was an opportunity for a job that came up and the woman who's the head of department said oh like you should go for this job um and I was like oh no anyway I, I went for it and had to borrow my mate suit which was hilarious and really big and I kind of like walked in and, and it was on I did my interview on cue cards because that's how old I am <laughs> I was a bit like yeah sure you're gonna give me this job and I got it um and it was running I was head 
uh, running the uh, head of drama and theatre studies A level and national diploma acting, um, and I was sort of strategically leading this other course as well. So, and it was great. You know, it was an opportunity to really sink my teeth into what that was. Um, and I had this amazing drama studio that I could just be really experimental in, and directed loads of work. And and I got asked by the uni to direct stuff, and it was there where. I was really empowered by the head of department to find this love for directing because he basically kept saying to me you're a director and I was like oh no I don't know I'm an actor um, but he really found he helped me and supported me and sort of mentored me to discover that I was excited by directing and it was something for me and um, and then we both left and I went back to carry on acting having got my qualification and having sort of you know been in this job for a bit Mm. and he gave me my first directing job and suddenly I was like in the actor's studio greeting people being like hi I'm the director of the play oh my god like terrible <laughs> um and just went oh okay well this is happening and, and it was really like you know a, an opportunity to try but in a supported environment and um, having known this guy and then yeah there was a point where I was directing and and acting and I was teaching and I kind of got heavily sort of questioned by a, a famous director who's a bit of a dick but anyway and basically was like you can't be all three you have to be one what what are you and I was like oh I'm a director and I think I never sort of looked back after that and I don't believe you do have to choose one I think you know you can be a great artist and you can span across all and they all intersect um, and it was only sort of later on in my directing career that I went oh yeah I, I understand why I'm a director because I love teaching mm. and not in a didactic way but to, to be able to share knowledge for lifelong learning for myself as an artist to share stories and to encourage people to learn about something really excites me as an mm. artist so I sort of feel like they all kind of interconnect um, and then yeah just started directing and um, just you know doing fringy stuff and trying to build opportunities and then I got an uh, opportunity to work with Pilot as an assistant director and when I was there um, on a, I met my husband my future husband um, and I did everything from buying the toilet roll to you know mucking in in tech um, yeah brain boots etc and then um I got the opportunity to come back. I was asked to come back as a staff director and then tour director and then ended up working for them as an associate director. Um, and that's where I'd say I'd really sort of defined my, cause I was older, like I'd been acting. So that's where I felt like I really defined my director mm. career, had an opportunity to direct a lot and to lead. Um, but again, it wasn't, you know, at that point at my career, in my career, I never sort of thought, oh, I'll, I'll be an artist director and that's what I wanted to do. I think I just ended up sort of, again, sort of through discovery and understanding myself and what I was about, the leadership part of myself grew within the context of that role, um, as opposed to me sort of there thinking, I'm going to be the, you know, a, an artistic director in however many years. Mm. And then, yeah, and then I left there, went freelance, and then me and Phoebe <laughs> took a chance, <laughs> applied for a job. Uh, it, it sounds like um, your journey has been quite consistent in terms of knowing what area you want to be in and just kind of finding where your skills are kind of best placed. Yeah, I think, I don't know, I feel like it's sort of that, you know, it's, it's this a lot of hustling over the years. Mm. It sounds so neat and easy to go. And yeah. Like, and, and none of it sort of happens accidentally. You have to hustle and, and, and work hard and... Um, 
Yeah, I think I just knew, I always knew that I would do something within the arts because I don't think I can do anything else. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't have that. Like I always, I remember growing up with a great friend and he was so great at everything that he found it really hard to go, what do I want to do? And I was like, well, I'm, I'm all right at that thing. The rest I'd say not so much. So there was, <laughs> there's that, it's, it's your, you know, it's your ambition, it's your passion. Um, and yeah, I feel like if I wasn't a director, then yeah, I would definitely want to be a teacher or, you know, I'd use that part of my skill set. And what about you, Charlotte? Do you have a similar journey? Um, yeah, similar in some ways, not in others, I suppose. So I grew up in Yorkshire um, and I, I mean, if essentially, when I think about why I started getting into theatre or liked theatre at school, is because I had an older sister who who did theatre, and I just thought she was the coolest person ever. So I just copied what she did, and I was like, oh, I'll do what she's doing. And then I was like, oh, this is cool. And then, um, and then quite early on, when I was about sixteen, I think uh, maybe a bit younger, I went to a youth theatre that was run by um, Sarah Brigham, who now runs Derby Theatre as an artistic director, and. Um, and I think that kind of, uh, well, actually, the first, yeah, it was run by her, but the, it was also Damien Cruden from York Theatre, who was the artistic director, kind of directed a show that, like, uh, sort of one of the seasons or something. And then, and then Sarah was running it as well. And I think just kind of like being around those people and, um, and especially like Sarah, kind of as a Northern woman, <laughs> I remember, I know it sounds really silly, but I remember coming back from a youth theatre session and I didn't think you could get a job in a theatre I was like well, you don't get a job in a theatre it's just something you do like it on your Saturdays or whatever mm. and then I remember talking to my friend at school Joe and saying oh there's this really cool woman who runs a, a theatre and she she like looks like us and sounds like us and she's from the north and, and I, I said job that's an actual job and I kind of could get the head around it like oh she's got an actual job in a theatre and that that's a thing mm. and I think that was a really important moment actually to think oh people work in this thing as opposed to it just being something that happens as a hobby which is obviously quite a familiar um assumption <laughs> and so that was a big moment and then and then I, again, <laughs> embarrassingly copied my sister and went to Hull University to do drama because she did. <laughs> when I really think about it, I did want to go, but also I was like, I, do, I don't know. I, I basically was in between doing sports science, uh, hilariously now, but sports science at Loughborough, which is a really good university for, Lough for sport, mm. or doing drama at Hull. And obviously very, very different. And um, and I remember my dad really wanted me to do sport because he was he 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 was really sporty and he was like, you know, I think you should do sport, but um I I didn't. And so and then so I went and did drama. And that for me was a point of going. And I think the reason why I would didn't do drama straight off, actually, if I'm honest, is because I still had this thing of like you can't get a job in it. Not that a degree equals a job anymore. Obviously, we all know that, but like at the time in my head it did. What's that feeling of not being able to get a job? because you were kind of in a regional um, place for theatre as opposed to say like the West End or was it just not having family and friends in the industry? Yeah I think it's class I think it's I think it's your background I think it's um, I didn't go to theatre growing up I didn't know anyone who worked a lot of the people I would say in my family and uh circles of influence at that time did jobs mm. for money that some of them they enjoyed some of them they didn't but it was very much you get a job to get paid and it wasn't a job about enjoyment yeah um, 
and so I think I think partly that and I think but I don't think it's due to location I think that exists regardless I think it's about your what what you're open what you experience what your experience is who who your role models who do you see and I think I also just had this idea that the word theatre as a lot of people think is like connected to posh is connected to rich is connected to um, a certain kind of person and so again <laughs> not to be like and then I met Sarah Brigham but when I did meet Sarah Brigham who's a working class northern woman from Hull um, run, you know doing a job like that I think it did genuinely make me go oh right there are other people in theatre who who mm -hmm. don't aren't, aren't the thing I thought it was um, and that's an actual job that could exist for someone like me as opposed to someone not like me so I think that's where that came from so I did that and then um, anyway I went to Hull um, which was great and I thought I wanted to be an actor because I thought drama was acting. Um, but then I was really bad at it. So I very quickly <laughs> sidelined into directing. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, I, and the first play I directed a play by Chloe Moss, which my sister was sending me plays that she'd seen. She was still into theater and at the time and um, and she was sort of sending me plays that she, she'd enjoyed and and read or seen. And, and so I sort of directed that and, um, and then when I finished, I I sort of did that thing of going, all right, I'm going to become an assistant director. Or, or like, I think I, I think initially I had this journey in my head, which we can talk about later, but about about what you do to become a director, which was you assist, then you assist in bigger places, and you're at the national, you're at you're in London probably, and you're probably in some big venues, and then they will give you a chance to do a show, yeah. um, or then you'll be considered as a director. But actually. Um, that's not really true but the but I suppose like my journey in was was assisting I did do quite a bit of assisting but I didn't do I didn't do as much as a lot of people actually because I got quite I think I was a bit bad at it um and, and I also got quite uh not frustrated but I suppose I, I I had some good experiences assisting and some not and I think I think that I kind of just felt much more like I just wanted to make my own thing but I didn't know how to do it so very early on when I was 23 I set up my own company um, which sounds very grand and it wasn't all it was just me in my bedroom coming up with a name but um but it, I did set up a company which was about a collective of writers directors and designers and we made work nationally and I was really interested in in, in looking at how new writing could have more of a national landscape mm -hmm. um outside, at the time I was living in London and I think having not come from London I felt like everything was centered here and it was also very exclusively expensive to be here and 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 there's lots of amazing things about London but there's also very difficult things about London and personally and professionally and so I sort of wanted to think about how as as writers and as directors and as designers interested in new writing you could have a more national career mm -hmm. so I set that up um and ran that for a few years um and and through that I basically taught myself how to be a producer right um which because I realized very quickly that the trick to um making work happen was having money <laughs> to me anyway was having money to be able to put shows on and and the only way and I kind of very basically I very quickly went no one's going to give me the thing so I've got to get the thing for myself mm -hmm. how can I do that what is the thing people have well they have obviously connections they have ideas I've got loads of ideas they've got talent I felt like I had the talent but I, they also have the money in the back end to like make their show and um and I decided decided to become a producer and a good fundraiser and I went on a bit of a journey into into that and so I, then I started self-producing or producing work through my company which other directors made and then sometimes I got producers on board and sort of straddled the two mm -hmm. for a number of years and I worked with Rash Dash as their producer for four years um, off the back of that never directing for them always producing but kind of like for me that was like a really fulfilling part of my career which also in turn helped me learn more about how to 
kind of make shows and get shows on. And so, so very much kind of, I never self-funded a show. <laughs> I, I self-produce shows, but I, I never had any money to put into a show and I highly recommend not doing that yeah. ever. Um, unless you're from, well, actually ever. Um, but I think that, um, yeah, for me, it was about, um, it was about kind of empowering myself to have opportunities that, mm-hmm. that weren't going to be given to me. Yeah, uh, you yeah. couldn't, you couldn't see them. So you made them. Yeah, yeah. So then you teamed up yeah yeah so we we'd sort of well we'd be I suppose in between all that like I said Kate had gone freelance we'd sort of reverse in a way hadn't we because Kate had worked for an organization for a number of years and I'd been freelance for a number of years yeah. and then and then just as Katie was becoming freelance I joined Soho Theatre as their associate yeah. director and that was the first like in my dad's words proper job I dad um because <laughs> I had a salary and um and so we sort of then kind of came to this kind of reached a natural point didn't we in our both our journeys individually where we were looking to be a leaders where we were looking to we both really shared a passion for new writing and also importantly for working nationally and working outside London working across the country mm-hmm. um and so it just sort of felt like a natural fit didn't it pause yeah I was thinking that um when we were in those programme meetings, yeah, like like we said, like we were pals. Um, and then we always felt like we were always of very similar vibes around sort of like writers that we loved and, and things we wanted to see happen. Um, and then, yeah, as, as Charlotte said, when I became freelance, I was then sort of closer to London and we'd see each other loads and we'd always go to the theatre and then sort of outside of that, we'd watch each other's work or we'd call each other up and yeah, like, you know, just peer mentoring each other mm. um and then I yeah and we always said sort of like in the back of our heads oh if Payne's Plough ever came up we'd go for it mm. um and Charlotte would always go we'd get it and I'd be like mm. oh and, like, and obviously like you know through through all that sort of great and you know whatever whatever that meant but um yeah it just felt like a, a really exciting opportunity when we found out that the job was up for grabs and mm. You know, I think women are terrible for it, but essentially you go into any sort of job interview or, or application going, oh, God, you know, are we going to, are we good enough with this, with that? It's just sort of natural, terrible default we've got to stop. Mm. Um, and we went through, you know, a big old interview process. And, and when we've got the job, it was like, it makes sense. Like I look at Payne's Town, I look at where we are and I look at the uh, how much we've shifted as a sector. I mean, don't get me wrong there's loads to do but mm. I think myself me and Charlotte probably wouldn't have got that job five years ago because of what we're about and what we believe in and what we're super passionate about um, and that really excites me because there is such a national focus and national passion you know like I, I grew up in London but I I never <laughs> never really was a director in London at all yeah. I never really had any sort of you know great ambition to do that I didn't wasn't about that it was making stories telling stories and and understanding what does you know what does it mean to work nationally and, and who are your audiences and what do they look like in Exeter to Newcastle to Plymouth wherever um, and that's what where the synergy of like yeah personal artists at the, at the helm of this leadership role and what the company does definitely. so so I guess the the Am I right in saying the kind of overarching element to Payne's Plough is that it's touring? Um, yeah. yeah, it's nationally reaching, but yes, mm. Yeah, 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 we're touring. I think that the two things that Payne's Plough does, touring and new writing. 
um, that that's the our kind of our um, remit. We're a nationally touring company, and I think what we always try try to do is think about how we're national across our work through the shows we make, where we take them, but also through our and and increasingly so more recently, like through our writer development mm-hmm. programs. How are we finding write, writers based nationally? How are they finding us? How are we finding them? How are we um, working with them, developing them, supporting them? Mm-hmm. So it's that constant balance, which is which is challenging, but because you can't be everywhere but yeah. you so it's that thing of being somewhere being in places meaningfully but also being aware that how that doesn't dilute what you do yeah. so not only are you programming work producing work you are trying to boost a new generation of creatives at the same time yeah absolutely yeah a big part of what we do is nurturing writers um and developing writers and and giving them the platform nationally to to mm. tell their stories yeah yeah I think you, you did a women playwright competition didn't you yeah we so we won the women's prize for playwriting and that's um that started last year so it's it's uh Payne's and Ellie Keel Productions um co-founded project and also um with the principal partner 45 North and um, and we've we, we launched it in 2020, which was about addressing the gender imbalance of female playwrights on our national stages. And then and it went really well. And it was, you know, don't get me wrong. It was a big learning curve. It's the first time I've done a playwriting competition of that scale. Yeah. We had almost 1200 entries. It was a you know big big old process, and now we're sort of in the second year of that, so it's launching. The submissions are open now, and they are closing in July, um, and then we're sort of going to be reading through the autumn mm. to get to our uh, winning plates. But the winner receives twelve thousand pounds, and also the option for Payne's Plow and um, the partners to produce the show. So reasons you shouldn't love me, which is a show coming up at the Kiln mm. in May, was one of the winners of the prize last year fantastic so we're actually gonna see it see it which is so exciting yeah and what's brilliant is that writer is a first time this is her first play amy trigg she's amazing it's absolutely brilliant it's hilarious it's moving it's kind of everything you want from a good night out it's a proper like just the tonic for return to theater yeah and and it's going to be a brilliant show and um and she'll be in the play as well but what's been really exciting is that she's a yeah say the first time it's her first play um this is going to be her first time being produced being published and that's all come to the women's prize and then the other winner of the of the program of the 2020 prize was um alam who um is writing under a pseudonym and um and their play you bury me which is an amazing epic about Cairo, which we're developing at the minute um, with, with uh, yeah, some partners. So yeah, it's, 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 it was a really successful first year. So we now want to build on that, you know, and see where we take it next. So, so this competition, has it changed how you kind of approach planning the year? You do it in 12 months? segments uh, yeah the, the the reading process and submissions and um, yeah that all happens within 12 months and mm-hmm. um, yeah I think it's just you know it has its mission to be able to see more you know female female writer, or women writers on our main stages and um, that's a really positive message so within the quite as Charlotte said we've got quite a rigid producing system, um, system in place so yeah it's it's We'll always have some association to seeing those plays come to fruition in whatever that looks like it will just mm-hmm. depend sometimes that's a full production with Payne's Pal sometimes that will be associates but we all there's always with a, a mission and an ambition to see those plays made um 
and and alongside it we've got uh, there's a great database where all the people that had made it onto the long list and the short list are all into this brilliant database so we can share that nationally as well when people go oh I just don't what, what female playwrights are they I can't really think of anywhere it's like sure pals get on the database because there's loads and they're amazing mm, and the yeah. read were just like incredible obviously you know they can't be they can't all be winners but um you know no, but I guess there's other producers out there seeking work exactly yeah 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 so it's good it's exciting so not only are you thinking what content can we make you're like how can we get this far and wide yeah as possible yeah. very impressive I was re- I was reading your um statement that you put out for for this year um promise of hope is is the <laughs> the line can you talk a little bit about that yeah, I think, um, so we we toyed a lot with this and, and for us, we were talking about um, launching our season or our in plans for 2021 and feeling like there's just, you know, we've all gone through a massive trauma personally, professionally, in every way possible, really, in the last year as, as a as a world um, and as a sector and as, as human beings. And so we were kind of trying to tread that, I suppose, recognizing the context in which we're going to be producing work hopefully producing work which is yes we have our roadmap for opening we have plans for you know what that looks like but as we all know from learnings of the last year that it's unpredictable that things can change um so we're sort of planning on on um on rocky waters really and and i suppose recognizing that therefore uh yeah what that means in terms of going this is what we'll be doing this year is that actually a false statement in a way it's like well, this is what we hope to do this year yeah. but also I think there's a process of healing that we all need to go through and we talked a lot about this Katie and I as as a sector and as, as people and as audiences and artists all coming together again for the first time and and what that um, I suppose looks like and what that needs and being sensitive to the fact that a lot of people um, colleagues friends have lost jobs this year have not worked for a long time are feeling scared about the future as are we in our own ways and and sort of trying to recognize and capture that that this is our hope our promise is to hope to make these shows and it's a hope to take care of you and when as audiences and artists when you work with us and when you come to connect with our work and that's that's kind of our intention but also recognizing that um recognizing that the plans that we we'd originally laid laid out what we wanted to sort of also think what else we and Katie always ask ourselves and what else and what else and so we have these amazing plays but also we're going is it enough it doesn't feel enough to go here's some great plays everybody and everyone should care about that like you know after the year we've been through there's a lot of change and and so we've started to so we've basically included a lot of kind of community-led initiatives in the program mm-hmm. for 2021 which wouldn't have potentially ordinarily happened in a year that wasn't um you know the one after covid and so we're partnering with food banks across the tour for roundabout to look at you know to address the fact that food banks are in dire need of donations and we're doing a show called hungry so it feels like there's an interesting connection there we're running a young people's program called really big and really loud inspired by phoebe claire powell show with the same title which is going to be one of our roundabout shows which is about connecting young people who obviously have been off school and disconnected for so long with each other and with their own voice and how they want to use it um, we've been working with uh, Tribe House, who are a new company, to look at um, alongside our small scale show, show te- sessions, which is touring in the autumn. 
which is uh, where we're going to be running an, um, a programme for young black men across the tour looking at mental health and creativity. So I think it's kind of, I suppose we've, we've tried to challenge ourselves to think what else do we exist to do and how does that become part of our promise outside our so, show? So you're not, you're not just thinking entertainment wise, you're thinking social impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. It's a yeah. big, it, I mean, it's a big goal. Um, it, it's, it's a lot of pressure almost on yourselves. Um, yeah, maybe. I think that, um, you know, it's, it, I think the pandemic has obviously, it's been a challenging time for everybody. I think when we talk about the value of arts and culture and um, we fly our flags and say it's really important and it saved lives, you know for us it's about saying sure a show can save a life because you're inspiring somebody it's a great you know place to yeah. tell a story but actually inspiring creativity beyond that um is integral so i've been speaking to a, a few quite a few um theater freelancers at the moment and a lot of them seem to be um quite eager and quite um excited about a lot of talks that are going on in the industry at the moment about potential changes that um they hope to kind of make based on what they've discussed and what they've learned from this year in the pandemic is there anything that you guys are particularly keen to to make change in um about how we support freelancers as, as in yeah yeah, I mean, it's you know, there's a massive disparity between um, the support that has been there for the freelancers. Um, you know, myself and Charlotte have both worked as a freelancer. We, we understand, and it's it's been a really really difficult time. Um, and for us, when the pandemic hit, we basically had the conversation, which was how how can we support as many writers as possible? How we can we can carry on commissioning? still um find opportunity to be able to work with freelancers during this time that's a major priority for us and then how can we support um other companies so we've got a new scheme called rebuild which is where we support two emerging theater companies um and it's all around sort of like sustaining um and developing and growing their organizations through the pandemic and then beyond. And we're also supporting them with some financial um, cash as well. And that they, those feel, again, really integral. But um, I think, you know, the, the opportunity to start getting work out there and celebrate um, the plethora of brilliant freelancers, like that's, you know, we have, that's the point of going, you can't do the work <laughs> without people. But I think that the bigger systemic change and, and you know, I've read lots and, and freelancers make theatre work, um, momentum, is that right? Um, but they've written a, a really brilliant account and about how organisations can do better and be better um, and, and really needed. And then sort of just thinking outside of that, thinking about um the kind of wider message and like people who aren't in the arts and their understanding of what what does that mean um and their understanding of the arts maybe you know going to a theater in the west end or in, in their local city um, and not sort of taking into account well who are the people that make those shows outside of that building and how are they being sort of um put at the forefront of that message and so sort of celebrating 
Um, and then I guess if we're thinking about us as an organisation, it's sort of like looking across our whole organisation, so beyond the artistic projects where we can engage more freelancers on shorter and longer term contracts, how um, we've got, you know, opportunity to kind of work within a kind of wider context, looking at geographical uh, employment to work with freelancers in, in a more sort of integrated way. So. Um, that feels really positive and, and I think across the sector, the mm. conversations we've been party to, it feels like that is at the forefront of the conversation. But I'm also aware that um, I read somebody, annoying, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Jay Core actually wrote, be, be aware of what you're posting and what you're tweeting and, and what that sort of message is. And, and it really stuck in my head because it's like, you know, it is that thing of like, everything feeling like it's coming alive great ah oh, everyone's like tell you because shows of happiness is great and and it is that feeling that not everyone's going on that journey and what does yeah. that look like and and sometimes you're having a great day and you look across everything and you're great and everything's great and you're so pleased and then other days you're like oh well I don't know when my next job is and I'm you know the world's woken up but what's happening to me mm. yeah. not to say to censor because it, it would be sad to think that you couldn't celebrate the celebrated things that, that should be shared but mm. just being mindful of it isn't it um yeah so hopefully <laughs> yeah no I think it's, it's going to be like that for a lot of people isn't it in terms of not just necessarily within, within the arts but just everyone getting back out there again yeah. I think there's suddenly this releasing of a year's worth of hopes and dreams yeah. and like a lot of people will be going after those goals but some people just might be struggling <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I feel like about giving going to the pub or something like mm. you know I've not been I've not been to the pub or anything since Monday but <laughs> since Monday it's only Thursday but you know like is it I'm not I wasn't one of those people who's like right I've booked my table and blah blah and I, I'm really I'm getting up for dinner next week one night with some friends and I was like, oh, I'm really excited, but I also feel like weirdly nervous. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's really sad, but no, I totally it's, get it. it's like, oh, it's just, it's like, I, and I think that I don't think I thought I would be like that. And I think there's, you know, I don't have like, I, I've never, not this about social anxiety and like that, but I don't, I just, I just thought I would just be like, boom, great, woohoo. And actually I, even I've hesitated about how I feel about it, which, which makes me think if you're someone who is more naturally hesitant about those things anyway, it must be, you know, triply. I think it's just out of practice. Yeah. 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 You have to kind of switch that part of yourself off because that doesn't exist. So yeah. you have to go, well, that's not an option for me. And yeah. Then... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've had a barbecue with some friends on Easter and absolutely knocked me out for two days afterwards. I was exhausted. <laughs> yeah. 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 We would talk about that with them. Um, I was talking about that with Amy Trigg, the writer of Reasons, because she done the same with she'd had an Easter weekend of seeing friends she's like oh so tired and we were talking about being back in the rehearsal room and I think that's another way we want to look at how we care for freelancers is mm -hmm. is um is about and, and we're building this into our budgets as well is like self-care and uh well-being really in in terms of how what the support there is <laughs> um and and certainly when when we're both directing the next couple of months we've talked a lot about making sure the whole there's a check-in with the whole team to go some of you may have been working the whole time in this last year and a half and some of you may not have worked at all and some of you might feel exhausted by working again and how we sort of manage and support that across different people i think is really important in terms of the spaces we hold because we have worked the whole time although we've worked from home we have worked the whole time so it just we're in a different headspace and everyone will be in their own headspace because it depends on who you are as a as an individual as well of course
how do, how do you build that kind of thing into budgets? Well, we have like, for example, we're going to be working with a drama therapist on one of our shows later on in the year um, that shows particularly about mental health, male mental health. Um, so, so it's sort of connected in with the topic, but I think also it's about making sure that there is, I think part of it's kind of financial in terms of going, does anybody, I don't know. It, it, I think it's been led by the room because pe you also don't want to second guess what people might need. And, and I think part of it is kind of process. So for example, I'm going to be checking in with my team on the first day to go, what are our hours? How does everyone feel about his hours? Is, is this really stressful getting back on public transport in London for the first time in rush hour? And do we amend that? And does it matter if you feel more comfortable coming in half an hour later or leaving half an hour earlier? How do we support you to not feel overwhelmed? Right. <laughs> that kind of like attitude, I think, in the space that you set up if you're leading the room, mm -hmm. that, that is really important. And then I think it's like, if there's just a bit of budget in there, which is to lean on if you go, actually, uh, you know, that person feels like they need a taxi that one night because they're overwhelmed by that thing or a separate mm -hmm. breakout space or a counseling session. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of got to be, a, there's a flexibility to what well-being looks like, depending on the individual and the show. You know what, I mean, I've, I've been around theatre productions since I was about 13, and I've never heard someone talk about having those conversations, you know, or, or just welcoming the topic of self-care mm. initially to the process you know it's all like oh no we're pulling these long hours get ready this is going to be hard and fast um which can be great but at the same time it's not considering everybody you know and I think it's also that damaging narrative like you work to the bone it will not I mean I'm almost eight months pregnant right now so I'm definitely not going to be not on the same energy level as I would be yeah. and I'm mindful of that but also like you know I think there's there's despite that even I think the thought of coming back out of the pandemic and also maybe being pregnant has made me go oh god a tech for that many hours is going to be really full on but actually then why do we have to do it like that and is there a better way to do it and we should be thinking about that anyway <laughs> you know yeah, I, mean, um, I, I was speaking to um I did a podcast as season one with a lady called Anna Fleischler who's oh, yeah. a um, production designer and I mean, she's top of her game in terms of her her role, and yet she was had these astonishing stories about how she was treated as a as a working mother, you know. And thankfully, I think it's changed um, a bit. And she's a ambassador for um, Hipka, I want to say, Hipka, yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's great that, like, at least with a, a female led business but also a, a, a friend led business you can you can really understand and support each other yeah, yeah. oh for sure like, I was thinking like um I kind of I, I was told my friend called me this morning because I bought her the Mary Portis work like a woman book that me and Charlotte have read and she was like I, I just need to call you because I'm so cross and I yeah. don't know what to do and she sort of like she does talk a lot about sort of like um female empowerment and lots of that but but in a slightly sort of measured way and she's yeah. like I don't know whether I'm like I don't know what to do because I don't want to read it anymore because I'm so angry but I have to because I want to and anyway she basically had this massive conversation and it spiraled a big argument with her husband anyway and I had like 20 minutes I was like 
mate, I want to talk to you about all this stuff. And then it had gone into like big stuff around like unconscious bias and systemic racism and yeah. you know, anti-Semitism. And I was like, this is massive. We will carry on. Um, and um, and it was, and we've both got children. And um, and I and I was talking and I, I've been really reflecting on this is going like, we look across like UK politics and go like our understanding of like what a politician or a prime minister looks like within the context of a woman in this country mm. is a very like male like dominant figure and like a woman that has to work like a man um, and there is this like narrative that we we take and, and I, I have my daughter she's seven now and mm. when I had her I'd be like oh you know I'm gonna go off this time then I'm gonna be back and when I'm back don't worry because I will be there I'll be in the room like I'll be so focused I won't worry you know I don't want you to think that now because I've got a child my head's split like all this terrible narrative that yeah. you tell yourself and, and that's without having that kind of bigger conversation without putting it on the table without going why do we do that and why is that necessary and that is just so destructive and mm. so wrong and you can be a great mom you can have your kid in the rehearsal room you can do all this stuff and and it is, as you say, now we've got opportunities, we've got responsibility as leaders, as leaders to say this isn't the narrative that we believe in, nor do we want to perpetuate. So what does the future look like and what does that look like in the context of Payne Style? Mm. Um, and that, that's a really exciting and that's, you know, a great position and, and a real privilege to be in as an artistic leader. And I think one of the big things that really fueled me wanting to make that step and to be an artistic director was to go that's an opportunity to me to shape not just in the context of what women do and and with childcare and all of that stuff but in so many more ways and that's like the political the politics of running this organization and what mm. we're about um is really rich and, and a great privilege uh, to make change mm. so if a young ingenue came up to you and said i want to be an artistic director what do I need to do? What's essential in terms of qualities to do what you do? How do you think you might answer them? There's a com it depends on the role very specifically, actually. So I, I feel like we sort of bandy the role of artistic director into one big thing, but actually what we do as artistic directors, although it has some crossover with venue artistic directors, it also is massively different. Mm. Um, I think that there's some common things, which is about, um, which is about, a desire to um, make change and hopefully positive change and inspire. And I think that's what leadership is, is it's about inspiring people to follow you. Um, and I think that, that you kind of using that. So I suppose in terms of what you need, it, it's like, how do you have leadership skills and what do leadership skills look like? I'd say that personally I, I, I don't think it's about um I think there's many forms of what a leader can look like and I think we've kind of conditioned a bit like Katie said in terms of the male gaze especially to think of a leader as the person in the room that shouts the loudest but that's yeah. not what you need to be at all what you need to have I think is a passion and a belief that you can use your position of power and privilege because it is a position of power and privilege as, a, as an artistic director to make positive change mm -hmm to um to the theatre industry and if you really believe that you have got that then I think that's the fundamental the fundamental kind of you know reason why you should perceive being an artistic director that's that's what I believe and I think if you're you know obviously the other thing to say is I think there's this kind of um common feeling that that 
not common feeling, but I, I think it's, there's a lot of narrative around the fact that artistic directors are, uh, are not seen as artists. Mm -hmm. um, and often, you know, some artistic directors um, are rec identify as artists, some identify as managers, some identify as both. And certainly like for me and Kata, we identify as both leaders and artists. And I think yeah. there's that kind of, um, I think, I don't think that's a necessity of being an artistic director. I think it's it depends on again the venue, the gig, the, yeah. the whatever it is. But I think that there's just just something there about kind of feeling like you've got something you want to share with the world, whether that's artistically in a leadership way. Ideally, both. <laughs> we yeah. feel we have both, which is why we wanted to do it. Katie, do you agree? Uh, yeah, 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 hundred percent. Um, yeah, I think it's also not trying to be like anybody else as I was thinking of what Charlotte said earlier I I didn't really do hardly any assisting probably like two or two jobs and mm. and I think it's because I always felt like oh I don't know like for me it wasn't kind of being in as many rooms to assist as possible to take a bit of everybody and define myself I always wanted to just learn on the job whether that's like you know with 10 pounds and and whatever to to make something happen and mm. um, and I think that's the same about yeah leadership it's defining that yourself and through your own lens um, and working out what is important to you uh, and for me I feel like um, I'm I am really political and I might not be out at every street corner at every protest but I know that we've got a privilege and a power as Charlotte said to make change mm. across our sector stories we tell every single decision we make it's all political it's all you know with great responsibility and, and that's something that I am mm. really fired up and excited by because that's the change that gets me out of bed in the morning <laughs> it was so lovely to meet you both and, and good luck with one month to go oh thanks two technically two I always forget that because like when you say you're eight months pregnant you're like oh my god it's happening in a month but then actually it's 40 weeks so I'm like <laughs> I've got nine weeks I've got nine weeks it's okay oh I've got to open and open and smash a show first so get that done and then I'll think about getting Don't a think about a child <laughs> thanks Meg lovely to meet you both thank you so much bye, bye. thank you for listening to this episode of the good bad mad podcast please subscribe to check out the next episode or leave a review if you liked it you can find us on Instagram at goodbadmad or at goodbadmad.com for additional resources and information. See you next time.